Strange Brew Podcast Season 1, Episode 73. The Brewers break out of a six-game losing streak in a big, big way, sweeping the previously in-first-place Pirates at AmFam Field over the weekend. Big come-from-behind win on Sunday. Yelly, another tremendous weekend. Is he back? He might be back. Is he an all-star? We'll break that down. They get set for another big showdown with the Arizona Diamondbacks starting at AmFam Field tonight. Second best record in the NL for Arizona coming into play tonight. It is NBA Draft Week. The Bucks have one pick. It is the final pick of the draft, which is on the way on Thursday. But rumors are that they could be trying to move back up into the first round. Bradley Beal sounds like he is going to get dealt to the Phoenix Suns. The Bucks were on the short list there, but it does look like he's heading to Phoenix. We'll talk about that. Wyndham Clark is your U.S. Open champion. We did not cash the ROM ticket, but we did cash the other three tickets we had. Are we good at gambling on golf? Have I missed my calling? And Jordan Love getting roasted by Bears fans after a happy Father's Day message on Twitter. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle. Base hit the center. Here comes Gomez around third. A throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap. He looks, he throws, and interception. And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker, the drive, gets inside, leads in. Backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul on a pinnacle ball. Throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, Brewers needed that badly over the weekend at AmFam Field. I needed that badly over the weekend at AmFam Field. If you remember on Friday... I was just trying to present the argument that the fans who were contending this team should be sellers at the deadline. I was pretend arguing what their arguments would be, and I almost talked myself into the Brewers being a bad team that needed to sell. So if anybody needed it as an individual fan, I needed this sweep. I needed the series win and the sweep over the weekend. We cashed the series win ticket, too. It was a profitable weekend. We got in on that on Friday at minus 130. As I said on Friday, it just kind of felt like the winning streak or the losing streak had to come to an end. It would be a good weekend to get a series win against the team that you've been back and forth with atop the division. And they did just that. We cashed that ticket, too. But Friday, they had to hang on, had a lead, and saw that kind of evaporate. Got to be a 5-4 game late. Devin Williams on for the save. He had runners at second and third and only one out. And you do start to think, after how bad it was for him on Tuesday, even if it's a dominant closer, I always feel like closers are two straight or three straight blown saves away from their whole career unraveling, you know? It's happened a lot. Derek Turnbow, it's happened a lot in Brewer history. Dan Kolb, Derek Turnbow, the long list of Brewer closers that were good for about a year or two and then started leaking oil one season and never were able to recover. Jim Henderson, as their bullpen coach, was kind of the same thing too. But he had that bad effort on Tuesday, which you're going to have. He had only given up one run and had not blown a save until that Tuesday loss against Minnesota. But then he comes back on Friday, and you want him to get right back on track right away because that closer position can be so tenuous. 
and he gets in trouble, and you think, God, if he blows this one, and then what if he comes out the third time and blows that one? At what point does the mental part of it start to play a factor for Devin? But he was able to walk the tightrope and get out of it. Brewers got that 5-4 one on Friday. Then Wade Miley came back on Saturday. They are starting to get some of these guys back. We still haven't heard anything on Brandon Woodruff other than the initial diagnosis of late June, early July return. Well, if they're going to see him in early July, he would have to be on rehab assignment at the end of this week. And we haven't had any inkling that that's the case unless something drops today before the Diamondback series gets underway. But he's going to need at least a start or two at the AAA level or maybe just send him out to the T-Rats in Appleton if they're home. Maybe do a start there or two. But that's still, if he started that this week, that still puts him at now mid-July probably for a return. The good news was Wade was back earlier than expected. A scary moment in the fourth inning when he was covering first base. It was one of those plays where it was hit to Rowdy. At his position about, I don't know, four or five feet away from the bag at first, Miley had to come over and cover. Miley will tell you he's not the greatest athlete in the world. He was sprinting over there, had to kind of catch over his shoulder, turn and try to step on the bag. They called the runner safe, and he was not safe. On replay, Miley beat him by about half a step. For whatever reason, the Brewers elected not to challenge that play, even though they had an extended time period to look at it because they were concerned about Miley's health. Miley was limping on it left knee as soon as that play ended, and you could hear the tone in Brian Anderson's voice on Bally Sports of, oh boy, we just got him back. The team just gets this crucial part of the rotation back and now he's going to be hurt four innings into his return. But he basically waved everybody off and said he was going to be okay. He finished that inning. I did not expect him then to come out for the fifth inning. I thought they would just go discretion, the better part of Valor there, even if they felt like he was okay. No reason to push it, but he must have been convincing enough in the dugout. He goes out for the fifth inning, scoreless frame there. Then he's done for the day, but a very encouraging return for Wade Miley, who picked up kind of where he left off when he got hurt. Five shutout innings. Bullpen was fantastic. Offense did enough in a 5 nothing win. That cashed our series win ticket. And then going for the sweep on Sunday, they actually came back from a two-run or greater deficit for the first time since mid-May. This Brewer team has not had a lot of success. Once they get down, they kind of roll over. Not for lack of effort, but that's a long time to go without overcoming a two-run deficit. Two runs. They got down 2-0. Freddie Peralta gave up the two-run bomb in the third inning. And he calmed down after that. Brewer Twitter was freaking out. His numbers are not great this year, and he has had a lot of trouble locating recently in his last five or six starts. A lot of walks, a lot of three-ball counts. What's weird about Freddie is, if you watch the games, his fastball velocity is way, way up. Even though his nickname is Fastball Freddie, he never was a guy that was throwing what he is now, which it seems like is between 95 and 97 pretty consistently. He's always been one of those guys in that 92, 93, sometimes 94 range. His location, though, on that high fastball is what got him by early in his career, and it's he at that time was only a two-pitch guy, and now he's added a third and a fourth, although he still relies heavily on the fastball. But you would think with the nickname of Fastball Freddy, he'd be just gassing guys up at 97, 98 consistently. He's never been that kind of guy until this year. You wonder if that's almost impacting his location where he's throwing three or four miles an hour faster more consistently if the ball's flying out on him a little bit more or maybe his release point is off. But when he gave up that two-run bomb and his ERA was sitting close to five in that moment and he has had this struggle of a stretch now, people are talking about, I don't know, put him in the bullpen, get him out of here, get him out of town. You're always one bad pitch away from being run out of town on Twitter. But he locked in after that. Six innings of two-run ball, nine strikeouts. That's a hell of a day at the at the ballpark when they needed it from him. Had the one mistake, and that was it. 
Uh, the Brewers down 2 nothing. do come back in the eighth inning. Game is tied at two when newcomer Rymel Tapia hits what I think B.A. thought, what I thought, and what Tapia thought was going to be a grand slam. Hits it to the wall. It's caught at the wall. But that does allow the go-ahead run to score. Luis Arias would tack on a clutch two-out, two-RBI single to make it a 5-2 game. And then Devin on Sunday looked a lot more like Devin. He mowed him down one, two, three, a couple of strikeouts in the ninth inning as the Brewers get the 5-2 win in the sweep. Tapia, by the way, is an interesting pickup. We haven't talked much about him. He's been getting more playing time the last few days. The Red Sox cut him. I'm not sure why. He wasn't lighting the world on fire, but he was hitting 265 in about 90 at-bats in Boston this year. Maybe they just wanted to get a younger player, a better look in the outfield, and they don't see Tapia as a guy that's going to be a part of the franchise moving forward. But they pick him up, and I was vaguely aware of who he was, and when they picked him up, I clicked on his stats and thought, this guy's hitting 265? This is how bad the Brewer offense has been this year. They pick up Rymel Tapia, who's been cut. He was cut at the end of last year by Toronto. Boston picks him up. Then they cut him, despite him hitting 265 and hitting lefties pretty well for being a left-handed batter. And the Brewers pick him up. He is instantly the third best batting average on this team at 265. I saw 265 and thought, yes, this guy is a fit. We need a guy like this that can make contact and can hit close to 270 or 275. And throughout most of his career, he's been riding between that 260, 275 range. They could really use that, even if they just have him as a fill-in at bat or a platoon player in the outfield, a guy who can play a variety of spots. If he's going to hit 260, sign us up for that based on some of the averages we see day in day out from the everyday lineup but he had that big sack fly and the Brewers do end up getting a 5-2 win they get the sweep now they have a half game lead still in the NL Central they have a two and a half game lead now in the Pirates but the Reds are scorching hot Brewers beat them three out of four since then have they lost I don't think they've lost eight wins in a row they did call up a couple of their big time prospects De La Cruz got called up somebody else I forget his name too but well, they've had this injection of youthful energy. We saw the Brewers have that a bit at the beginning of the year with Garrett Mitchell and Bryce Terang when nobody really knew who they were or how to pitch to them. And and Joey Weimer, who had another nice day on Saturday, hit a home run. Did you see on Saturday that they were giving out free mullet haircuts in the outfield? They had kids lined up for the free Joey Weimer mullet haircut, and he goes yard. It's 10th home run. But I think the Reds are experiencing some of what Brewers fans experienced at the beginning of the year with some of the young prospects getting called up. That has ignited them, and they're not beating slouches. They sweep the Astros in Houston over the weekend. Got an extra innings win on Sunday to complete that sweep. But they're a half game back now of the Brewers with that eight-game winning streak for first place in the NL Central. But back in first... The waters have calmed down a bit just with getting the sweep and maybe stabilizing a touch in the month of June. We got to talk about Christian Yelich, too. Is Christian Yelich an all star? I'll hang up and listen. You tell me. I'll take my answer off the air. He might be. Everybody gets one. They do need to get rid of that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I think that needs to just be done away with. My feeling most of the year was that the Brewers' only all-star was going to be Devin Williams, and it may still be that. Even with the blown save and the bad outing last Tuesday, he has one blown save after the saves on Friday and Sunday. He's 12 of 13. His ERA is 1.9. His strikeout rate is really good. It feels pretty likely if they only get one, and I don't see them getting two, but if they only get one, it still feels 70% chance it's going to be Devin. But I think Yelly is putting himself in that conversation. He had two doubles again on Sunday. He is hitting 334 in the month of June, and now we're to the middle to late portion of June. His OPS for the year is over 800. He has an 801 coming out of yesterday with a couple of doubles. We have not seen Yelly's OPS over 900 or over 800 since 
before 2020, the pandemic-shortened year. He had a 786 OPS that year when he was still hitting for a little bit of power in the pandemic-shortened year. And then we all know how bad 2021 was. Got a little better in 2022. But now starting to look a bit more comfortable. The swing looks more relaxed. He's getting it through the zone quicker. I don't know. You know, there's so many debates and thoughts about that fractured kneecap in 2019. And not so much what that did to him physically, but did that impact him mentally? It's hard to imagine it wouldn't have. I remember watching that game vividly. I was cooking dinner, had the game on in the background, and I can kind of see the TV when I'm cooking. And you could hear when he hit that foul ball, you could literally hear his kneecap shatter on the TV broadcast, and he went down like a ton of bricks, which you would expect. That's how grotesque that injury was. That has to impact the way you swing. There has to be some subconscious level of your brain when you swing after that that's trying to protect you from something bad like that happening again. And maybe it was more just getting over the mental part than it has been getting over the physical part of the broken kneecap, which I'm sure physically he's been fine now for a couple of years at least. But maybe there was a mental component there. And baseball's baseball, too. It could just be that he was mired in a huge slump. We've seen that, too, where guys who are really good have a bad year or two or three and then slowly come out of it. That is a factor as well. But you do wonder about that fractured kneecap. If there's just some little hitch in his swing just to protect himself from maybe putting himself in a similar spot in the future, if that has been making things hard on him at the plate. But, man, does he look pretty good now. I'm not saying he's full-on 2018 or 2019 Yelly yet. We did have a texter this morning say they felt like he was kind of on the 2018 Yelly trajectory because at this point in 2018, his MVP year, in June of that year, this is about what we saw. He was hitting 270, 280, maybe 290, hitting for some power, ripping doubles, stealing bags. It really wasn't until August or September when he got just in fuego. I mean, that's September of 2018. Every time he came to the plate, it felt like it was a home run or a double or something positive. He didn't really catch fire until late in the year. I don't know if I see that happening like that texter sees maybe this season playing out a similar fashion. God, we would love it if it would happen. It would be a delight if he could do that, turn that trick. But I see him more right now as Miami Yelly. And I've said this for a year or two now. Just give us back Miami Yelly. Put on the linen white shirts. Give me Don Johnson Yelly. Give me Miami Vice Yelly. Put on some flip-flops and some breezy khakis and a cotton shirt. <laughs> Just swaying in the breeze. Put some shades on. That's who I want. I want Miami Yelly. Because when they acquired Yelly, Yelly was a very productive player. But he was a guy that was hitting about 280 every year. He was giving you maybe 18 to 20 home runs, maybe 25, batting in 80 or 90 runs, stealing some bags here and there. He won a gold glove in the outfield. He was a much better defensive player in Miami. But I've said now for a few years, just give us that Yelly back. Give us the original Yelly we thought we would do before he raised expectations in 2018 with the MVP season and 2019, which had he not broken his kneecap, likely would have been his second MVP in a row. And who knows how that year plays out. If he's hitting the way he was hitting all year and you have him for the whole month of September, they probably don't even end up in that wild card game. The whole season, the whole timeline could be different if Yelly doesn't hurt himself in 2019. But after a miserable 2020 and a really miserable 2021 where he was borderline not even an everyday player. I remember in the playoffs that year against Atlanta thinking we need to bat Tyrone Taylor every day because at that time Tyrone was giving you some pop and was making stronger contact and Yelly just felt like an automatic out. That's where he was at. And then last year, things got a bit better when they moved him in the leadoff spot. 
But it does feel like we are right now back to Miami Yelly, and we've seen a large enough sample. Now, look, he's going to go into slumps. He's going to go over 20 at some point. All players do, or over 25. He's going to have that. Every player goes through that over the course of a long season if you're playing every day, and he is playing every day. That's another factor here where he's finally healthy and out there pretty much every day. He had the one back flare up, and that was it. Knock on wood, don't jinx it, don't mush it. But he's going to have slumps. But if he can just be Miami Yelly again, then you are in a good spot. Then that contract actually isn't all that painful. Given the amount of money guys are making for similar or less production now, that contract extension that he signed four years ago, making, what, 24, 25 mil a year? If he's a guy that's going to hit you 280, 285, or get somewhere close to that and have his OPS a little over 800, and he's stealing 30 bags a year, and he does get to 20 home runs and 30 doubles— then that is something that you can certainly live with going forward. He is their best player right now. We talked about that on Friday, too, and he only emphasized that with a really solid weekend against Pittsburgh. But if you're looking for an all-star selection, he might be. If he stays hot until the 4th of July, if he has two really good weeks yet and he does get that average up to 280, 285, he might be. He might. We might be looking at Yelly back in the all-star game. That's how good he's been this year. Speaking of he's back, I have seen this meme. Anytime Yelly does something good these days, I do love seeing these memes on Brewer Twitter. He's back. Get the wedding crashers. He's back. <laughs> All right. Is he back? It looks like he might be. We'll see if the Brewers can keep things going tonight or this series starting tonight against the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks, pretty good. When these two teams squared off in Arizona and the Diamondbacks took two of three, at that time they were over 500. I don't know what the expectation was from their fan base or just baseball fans in general. That early in the year was still too early to know what they were going to be. And when you think of the NL West, you just think of the Dodgers, that loaded payroll, the loaded payroll and all the huge names in San Diego. Even the Giants, they haven't been what they were in the 2010s when they were winning a World Series every other year and Madison Bumgarner was in his prime and Buster Posey. Well, you just don't think of the Diamondbacks too much, but they've got a really good pitching staff top to bottom with Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly. And the offense has been... I would say unexpectedly good for them so far this year. They are the second best record in the NL coming into time. They've got like a four-game lead in the NL West heading into this evening. And it's a good pitch up, pitching matchup right out of the gate tonight at AmFam Field. It'll be Merrill Kelly. They're, I would say, 1B, their version of Brandon Woodruff. They're not the same type of pitcher, but they've got Gallon and Kelly the way the Brewers, when they have Woodruff, have Burns and Woodruff atop their rotation. It is Merrill Kelly and Corbin Burns tonight. They will have to deal with Gallon on Wednesday afternoon, but this is a good litmus test series. If you can take two out of three here, I mean, you want the sweep, obviously. You want to win every game. If you can take two out of three against the second-best record in the NL and go 5-1 and on this homestand, then you feel pretty good about the direction this team is headed as we are in that 30-day window now that we talked about on Friday's podcast before the Pirates series started. They've got about 30 days to bleep or get off the pot, as some would say. And then by we get to 30 days from now, by the time you get to mid to late July, if they're still struggling like they were on that losing streak, then you're talking about selling. If they are starting to get it together like what we saw this weekend, then maybe you're talking about staying in contention in the NL Central for the entirety of the year. Maybe you even become a team that looks to buy a piece or two. But we're at the beginning of that window, and it's been a really good start with the sweep against the Pirates over the weekend. All right, let's talk about the NBA. Bradley Beal's headed to Phoenix. Woj bomb yesterday. Apparently, it was a three-team race between Phoenix, Miami, and the Bucks. Phoenix were late stages of those conversations, but that's where he's going. I feel like the Bucks dodge a bullet here. I was bullish or bearish. Which one's the one you don't want? What's the, how does the stock market work? Bearish, right, if you don't want it? I was bearish on the trade to begin with because I just didn't see the net gain. I don't think he's that much better than a healthy Middleton, if we're assuming Middleton is now healthy. 
I think Middleton and Beal are a push, and Middleton's done it in the playoffs, and Middleton's done it in big NBA Finals games, and Beal has never done that. And if you looked at trading Drew, I think Beal gives you certainly more offensively, a more consistent shot probably offensively, but Drew gives you so much defensively, and Beal is either an average defender or a below-average defender by about any metric. So if you were giving up one of those guys, I just didn't see the net gain going forward. Now, it should be noted, the Bucks maybe didn't have to give up either of those guys. I figured that any trade for Beal would involve at least one star player going back to Washington, and that's not how it ended up. Phoenix is going to trade Chris Paul, who I guess you could consider a star player, but future Hall of Famer, 38 years old, back end of his career, not somebody that's going to help the Wizards make any kind of push or make them any more attractive this year. And I would imagine, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute or two, I would imagine they're either going to look to trade him or maybe a third team gets involved here yet before the trade is consummated. Or if the trade does go through, I would anticipate the Wizards are going to buy him out and he is going to be a free agent on the open market with the money he's already made this year in his back pocket because of the buyout. But it only costs Chris Paul, Landry Shamet, who is kind of a decent bench player and then just a bunch of second round picks. So my assumption that either Chris or Drew would have been involved in a Bucks trade could have been inaccurate given how little the Suns had to give up to get Bradley Beal. Now, Phoenix, of course, they're going to call them a super team and you've got Beal now along with Booker and Durant. There's only one basketball. I mean, they're all ball dominant players who need the offense to filter through them. Somebody's going to have to sacrifice there to make that thing go. Perhaps Bradley Beal in a better situation with a chance to win a ring on an ultra-talented team. Maybe he does change the way he plays or tweaks it enough to where he's more of a facilitator or he doesn't have to be ball-dominant. But that's who he is. That's He's a volume scorer who needs the ball to go through him to be putting up 25, 26, 27 points a game or 30 points a game like he had back in, what, 2017 and 2018 back-to-back years where he was averaging over 30. That's one reason I didn't really think he was a fit in Milwaukee, and I just don't see how that works in Phoenix. And the super teams that we've seen come and go over the years in the NBA just have not worked out. This does feel a little bit like that Brooklyn super team with Durant, Harden, and Irving. The -the off-the-court stuff with Irving and Durant maybe is a little more dramatic than it will be with Booker and Beal, and maybe those personalities mesh better. But just in terms of offensive strategy or game strategy, all of those guys need the basketball. Unless one's going to come off the bench, I don't know. They'll be the odds-on favorite to either finish first or second in the West, I would think. And they'll be top three teams to be in the running for an NBA title, just the betting odds. I just don't see how that's going to work on the floor unless one of those three guys has a pretty big change in how they approach the game and maybe become more of a passer or more of a catch-and-shoot guy not a give them the ball and watch them dribble it for 10 seconds guy. Something is going to have to change there. And maybe KD is that guy. Maybe KD on the back end of his career, which is where we're getting to with Kevin Durant, maybe he is willing to adapt a bit more. I just don't see how that's going to work on the floor. And I feel as though the Bucks did maybe dodge a bullet there in terms of fit and in terms of contract where the Suns now, I don't even know how they fill that roster out. You've got Durant making a ton of money, Beal's making a ton of money, Booker's making a ton of money or will be when they sign him to his extension. I don't know how you fill that roster out. Aiton's got a big contract. Maybe they trade him for somebody. But filling that roster out and getting any kind of depth, and depth was a problem for them in the playoffs this year just after picking up KD. Depth is going to be a major issue, I would think, for Phoenix. Maybe some ring-chasing veterans out there that still have something left in the tank that will join them on veterans' minimums. I don't know, but I just... 
I know they're going to have uh, an over-under win total in the upper 50s, maybe it's 60, and they're going to be one of those teams that's an odds-on favorite to win the West or win the NBA championship. It's just hard to think of how that's going to work on the floor with three guys that need the ball a lot in order to put their 25 to 30 points per game up. Anyway, the Bucks do not go in that direction. The draft is on the way tonight. Now, would Chris Paul, and we've had this discussion before, if he is bought out by Washington, I think he does kind of become an option for the Bucks because like we talked about when this first note came out that the Suns were going to cut him or waive him, the thought was how would you get Chris Paul to Milwaukee? The Bucks have very little wiggle room financially, but if this trade goes through and it just stays as is, the likelihood is that Washington's going to buy out Chris Paul, so they're going to give him his money for his contract year, and then he's probably only going to be looking for a small amount of money to join a championship-contending team. What team fits that bill? The Bucks are a championship-contending team still in their window, and they don't have a lot of money. If you can get Chris Paul on the minimum, when we were discussing this the first time, we were thinking mid-level exception, would he play for 5 to $7 million on a one-year deal for the mid-level, or how would you make the money work? Well, if he's getting bought out and he's got his money for this year already in his back pocket before the year even begins, maybe he's not going to care about only getting paid a million or two to join a team and try to finally get the ring, the last thing that he needs to complete a Hall of Fame career. He's a Hall of Famer either way. But you know what I mean, how his legacy will be looked at moving forward. If he has that ring and he's playing a decent role on a team that wins a title, that's only going to add to his legacy in the NBA and add to that Hall of Fame resume. Yeah, if he gets his money from Washington, he's just out there. I would think the Bucks are going to be on the short list because he does sort of fit exactly what they need. We talked about at the end of the year. We talked about on the podcast when Paul was rumored to be waived by the Suns. The Bucks need a point guard. They need a true point guard. And if you can get a true point guard and keep Drew and Chris and Giannis together, that's the perfect scenario. We've seen now Drew Holiday down the stretch in playoff games. He just doesn't make all the right decisions that you need a poised point guard to make. And especially in those Miami games when things were crumbling late, he would take ill-advised deep threes where he was just chucking them two or three feet behind the line, bad passes, turnovers. They just need a calm, composed point guard, which Chris Paul would be. And I don't see any world where he plays a year in Washington or why the Wizards would want that or why Chris Paul would want that. Again, maybe they'll look for a third team to hop in here on this trade to acquire Paul. Could the Bucks be a part of that? Maybe. But if he's just going to get bought out and cut, I've got to imagine the Bucks are going to be on the short list of two to three teams that are going to be very interested in bringing in Chris Paul for the upcoming season. We'll see how that shakes down. The draft is on the way this week. The Bucks currently hold the 58th and final pick of the NBA draft. I'm not sure what kind of impact player you could find there or what kind of project player that you could find in that spot. Likely the latter, likely looking for a project. There have been rumors that they're trying to trade a player or future picks to move into the first round. It has been rumored on Sunday that they're shopping Grayson Allen to see if that could maybe get them close to getting back in the first round or maybe getting up toward the top half of the second round. I'm fine with that. Grayson's given you some things over the past two years. He can knock down shots. He's a great regular season player. 
Grayson is a perfect regular season player on a championship contending team like the Bucks because he can play 25 to 30 minutes a night. He shot well from beyond the arc, 40% or close to 40% from beyond the arc on his spot-up shooting in his two years in Milwaukee. He'll give you 10 or 11 points a game. He'll do a few things. He had that one hammer dunk at the end of the year. He's more athletic than I think people give him credit for. He's a really good regular season player. The problem for Grayson is he's so bad defensively. You cannot have him out there for long stretches in the playoffs. We saw it against Boston in that series two years ago. We saw it this year against Miami. And then we saw at the end of that Miami series him eating the ball and not even getting a shot up in the final seconds with a chance to tie or win the game. But he's just not a guy that you're going to have on the floor in the playoffs if you're making a run at a title. And that's what the Bucs are looking at right now. You are going to have to fill the roster out with regular season guys. But as they look to tweak this team and tweak the roster and the new coaching staff has their input, what they're looking at is how is this going to play out in May, in April and May and hopefully June. We need to find guys that we can have out there for decent minutes in tight playoff games and we trust them. And I don't think Grayson, after two years, is a guy that's going to fit that bill. Maybe he's a first-round player. We saw against Chicago a couple of years ago. He lit the world on fire in that series. And then once the competition levels up, he's just not a player you want out there, especially defensively, for long stretches of time. Maybe he gets eight to ten minutes in a series like that, in a critical series. Hopefully it's a shot or two and doesn't damage you too much defensively, and then you get him out of there. But for those reasons, I think if you can move on from Grayson and you can move up a bunch of spots in the draft – that's something you've got to look at. I've seen Pat Connaughton's name out there. I would be more hesitant to trade Connaughton because even though Grayson's shooting is more consistent overall, and we saw Connaughton really scuffled from beyond the arc in the regular season this year, we've seen playoff Pat. And Pat, at any moment, gives you better defense, better athleticism. And then we saw in the playoffs his shot come around. He started knocking down threes in that Miami series. Of course, we're always going to be nostalgic for Pat and the critical role that he played in the title team in 2021 where he was hitting big threes in the later rounds of the playoffs. He was hitting massive threes in NBA Finals games. For those reasons, it would be tougher to see Pat go. But just from an X's and O's standpoint, I would be more reluctant to get rid of Pat than I would be to get rid of Grayson. The other name that's been thrown out there, and it's going to be another one that would be a bitter pill to swallow because of the nostalgia of this guy and the 2021 season and how much Milwaukee loves Bobby Portis. I've heard that name thrown out there, too, as a guy that could maybe get you back in the first round. And as much as I love Bobby, and I love, we all love Bobby. We love chanting Bobby, Bobby, Bobby like psychopaths when he comes in. We love the wide eyes. We love the intensity. We love how he stirs things up. It goes back to the Grayson conversation of what does he do for you in the playoffs? Bobby's going to get you 15 and 10 in the regular season. If you give him minutes, he finished, what, second or third and sixth man of the year voting this year. He's always going to give you that, and he's always going to bring that intensity, and he's going to be a guy that will go nose-to-nose with somebody and get physical if he needs to get physical, and that gets the crowd stirred up and gets the team stirred up. But the practical application of Bobby in the playoffs has not been great the last couple of years, and even in 2021, he didn't play a minute really in that Brooklyn series because of the matchup. He played more against Atlanta because Giannis got hurt, and he was huge in that series, played a pivotal role. And he played less minutes against Phoenix, but had some nice moments against the Suns, especially in the clinching game in Game 6. But he's another guy like Grayson, where he is a defensive liability. And for that reason, sometimes in playoff games, and basically he was this way the entire Miami series, he just wasn't all that playable. Now, we love Bobby, but if you can move Bobby and you can move into the 20s and you can move back into the first round, if you package Bobby with some sort of cash or future second-round picks and you can move up to 23 or 24 and get into the first round, 
That's something this team has to explore because the Bucks are two things right now. Well, they're three things. They're a championship contender. Yes, they are still in their window. And as long as Giannis is in his prime, they're always going to be in their window. But they are firmly still in their window. If you want to say it's closing, fine. But they are still in their title window. But they are also old. They are one of the oldest teams in the NBA, and they are expensive. They are very expensive. If you can move a guy like Bobby, as much as that would frustrate a lot of Bucks fans because of how much we love Bobby, and the same for Pat, but if you can move those guys and get somebody on a rookie deal who is maybe a little more athletic and obviously younger and on that cheap rookie deal, that's something you've got to seriously consider if you're Bucks management. Now, the other part of that story of this narrative would be if you do that, if you do trade a chip, a Grayson or a Pat or a Bobby to move into the first round or the early part of the second round, You've got a hit on that pick. And the Bucks draft history, for the most part in the last 15 years, has been pretty miserable. Now, what cures all of that is Giannis. The Giannis pick is such a home run where they get this 18-year-old string bead kid from the B-Grease League, and he turns out to be a top 25, top 20 all-time level player, a finals MVP, a two-time MVP, a defensive player of the year. You know, I think from a national perspective, people don't – realize how bad the Bucks drafts have been because when you hear Bucks draft picks, you immediately think of Giannis and what a home run it was. But if you go back and look at some of these picks, they're not just not finding all-star level players or productive players. They're not finding usable players. If you even go back to 2010, Larry Sanders, who had a couple of okay years, he's not in the league. John Henson, who had a year or two where he was okay, he's not in the league. They get Giannis in 2013, but then this list of guys, Johnny O'Brien, not in the league. Damian Inglis, not in the league. Jabari was an unfortunate injury story. And if not for the recurring knee injuries, he's probably somewhere. Is he in Milwaukee? I don't know. Probably not. But he's probably somewhere averaging 18 points per game. But he's not in the league. Rashad Vaughn's not in the league. Malcolm Brogdon they got in the second round in 2016. He was the rookie of the year that year. And he is a very productive NBA player. I won the sixth man of the year this year. That's one. Then Thon Maker's out of the league. DJ Wilson's out of the league. R.J. Hampton's out of the league. You got Dante DiVincenzo in 2018. He's not an all-star caliber player, but he's a usable player. He was productive in Milwaukee. He's been productive in limited minutes in Golden State. But if you just go up and down the list of draft picks, they have not found usable pieces. And that's kind of what has been missing during the Giannis era. The Bucs have had to be so active on trade fronts and free agent fronts because they don't have guys on those four-year cheap rookie deals that are giving you something. Now, we hope Marjan Bochamp develops. We saw some things that you liked when he got minutes in the regular season. He didn't get minutes consistently from Mike Budenholzer. Maybe he will with Adrian Griffin, and we've seen him already many times on Instagram and on Twitter. He's in Greece. He's working out with Giannis. He's getting bigger, it sounds like. You hope that he can be a more rotation player this upcoming year and can be something for you whether it's usable for you or usable as a trade chip in a year or two, they just have not had that component in the Giannis era. So if you can move up, great. But if you move up, you've got to hit. I mean, you've got to find somebody if that's the move you're going to make on Thursday. But right now they have the 58th and final pick of the draft in Thursday's NBA draft. Thursday, 7 o'clock, I think. And then, real quick, U.S. Open, tip of the cap to Wyndham Clark, which is an all-time bougie golf name. That in Hans English. Those two from the tournament, I thought, that is just very pompous golf naming right there. 
But Wyndham Clark, 29 years old, his first major. When you hear a story about losing his mom when he was 19 years old, they talked about that extensively on Sunday. You really feel for him. You saw the outpouring of emotion. All of his friends and family were there. Felt great for him. Almost fumbled it away at the end. Had a three-shot lead with four holes to go. Got down to a one-shot lead with Rory on his heels. But he makes that great chip and then is able to putt his way in. Was it the chip on 17? And then was able to two-putt for the win on 18. Gets his first ever major championship at 10 under par. We did not cash the Rom ticket, obviously. Although Rom had a good Sunday. He snuck into the top 10. He is 5 under on Sunday. But he got back into the conversation on the fringes of it. We didn't cash that ticket, but we got all three other tickets. Victor Hovland finished 19th. We, we barely got there, but we had him top 20. We had Rory top 10. He, of course, finished second. And we had Scotty Scheffler top 10, who was the odds-on favorite to win it before the tournament got underway on Thursday. He finished fourth, third or fourth. But we cashed the Rory ticket, the Scheffler ticket, and the Hovland ticket. We end up plus 275 on the tournament, even with the Rom loss. So we got those three. We got the Rory top 10 ticket of the PGA Championship and the Rom to win the Masters. It has been, we must be plus almost 2,200 on golf this year. Should we be doing more golf betting? I thought about that last night as I laid down in bed and I looked up at the ceiling. I did click on on my score center app. Instead of just betting on one guy to win majors, which is what I had been doing for five or six years in a row, now obviously we've incorporated top five bets and top 10 bets and top 20 bets. But should we be gambling on every tournament? They've got the Travelers Championship coming up this weekend. Should we be looking at a champion there or a top 10 or a top 15 bet that we can make? Maybe. It has been a profitable golf season. But tip of the cap to Wyndham Clark for getting that win in L.A. on Sunday. And then finally, I've got to play this for you. It brings me no pleasure, Packer fans, to play the Jordan Love Father's Day clip. There's a little bit more story to this coming out this morning, but this you may have seen on Twitter yesterday. Jordan Love wishing... All the Bears fans out there, a happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to uh, all the Bears fans out there. Go Pack Go. Happy Father's Day to uh, all the Bears fans out there. Go Pack Go. Now, Packer Twitter initially ran with this and said, oh, look at Jordan Love taking shots at the Bears. You love to see it. But if you think about what he said for a second, if what he's trying to say, if what we think he was trying to say is that the Packers are the Bears' daddy or Aaron Rodgers is their father or he's their father, that kind of trash talk, if that's what he's going for, that was kind of a Michael Scott screw-up. Fool me once, strike one. <laughs> but fool me twice, strike three. Yeah. If that's what he was trying to say, he missed the mark. And then Bears fans started going wild with it because he's essentially saying Bears fans are his dad. I have seen further context on Twitter this morning where apparently a French Bears fan, a Bears fan from France, somehow ran into Jordan Love or was in town for practice or whatever. And he is saying the French Bears fan on Twitter is saying that he handed Jordan Love the phone and ask Jordan Love to wish a happy Father's Day to the French Bears fans out there. And the guy who re- who recorded it and had this interaction is saying Jordan Love obviously didn't say French as a part of it. And now the internet is taking it over and it has ignited into this viral story. When really it was a fan asking him to wish French Bears fans a happy Father's Day. So maybe it wasn't trash talk. Maybe he was just going for an actual nice thing to do for a fan that had approached him. But it did catch fire, unfortunately, on Twitter on Sunday. And our boy Jordan was, he's not going to hear the end of that one.
But maybe it was. Maybe it was just a, almost a cameo message he was doing for a French Bears fan that had approached him with a phone over the weekend. But I saw the video, and I saw Packers Twitter running with it as trash talk. And the second I heard what he said, I thought, but but that doesn't – I don't think that's – I don't think that means what you think it means. I don't think that's what you want to say. And then that started to gain some steam on Twitter. All right, what are you going to do? We'll come back after on Friday. We'll know a little bit more after the NBA draft on Thursday if the Bucks do just stay in that one spot and pick somebody with the final pick of the draft or if they do make a trade or trade somebody significant and try to move it into the first round. We'll be recapping that on Friday either way. We'll recap a busy week of Brewers baseball, like we said. Big matchup with the second-best team in the National League starting tonight at AmFam Field. We'll be breaking that down as well. Have a good work week. We'll chat with you then.